I don't know about you, about you, but rain is just what we needed, right? Another, another beautiful wet weekend in Virginia. You remember the sun, though? Last week, at the beginning of last week, it was amazing. Hopefully you got it out in it some. Our house is on a small wooded curve, and along that, that stretch of road, for some reason, it seems like that is where people just happen to finish their beverages. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, you know, they're leaving their house or coming back from work or they just stopped at the restaurant or something like that. But soda or sports drink or cheap beer, you know, that apparently is where a lot of people finish, finish what, they're, what they're drinking. And a little bit of food trash there as well. Why do people litter? Every time, every time I look down the road, I'm thinking, like, is this really what we want to look at? And I've been, I've been to, you know, a lot of different places around the globe, and so I know that litter, it could be much worse, you know, in some, some scenarios. But why do people do it? What happens to someone in their life that says, you know what's a good idea? I'm done with my, you know, I, I, Natty Light, you know, or my soda, and, and I have nowhere. And you know their car isn't nice. You know, if you're willing to throw trash out on the street, you know the, the vehicle's already junked up. And so why not just, like, throw it in the back like I do? Um, they're water bottles, by the way. Maybe I should clarify that uh, in my vehicle. But um, you can go look. They're all still there. Uh, they're all still there. But why, why is that? Uh, you know, I wonder what goes on in a person's head that, that calls them to do that. And there are a lot of things that I think. But after checking out some studies, here's what I discovered. It sounds like litter really happens just as a matter of convenience. Now, I would call that just being lazy, you know, uh, because that's, that's how I, I think about it. But it's really just people end up doing it because there's not a trash receptacle nearby or because they just happen to see other litter there and figure, hey, this is the place where you throw out your stuff. And maybe some of that is, you know, I live a little bit out in the country, and so maybe there's a little bit different mentality, you know, about having enough land to, you know, to leave some tires here and there every, every once in a while. Um, but, you know, it's the environment or the culture of the space that often dictates how people respond and act and live out their lives within it. And as we look into the book of Amos this morning, as Adria mentioned, um, this is... This is all about the kind of culture that had developed in Israel as a result of their being in a period of wealth and success and being really interested about how all the nations around them lived. Now we're in this sermon series called Minor Prophets, Major Lessons, and we're looking at four different prophets throughout the Old Testament and what their message is and how it applies to us today because it speaks volumes to how we are impacted by the culture and the systems of our culture that we live in within as well. And of course, we're not going to cover all nine chapters of Amos this morning, but like I've encouraged you over the past few weeks, take some time this week and read through the entire book. It's not that long. It's only nine chapters. Read through the entire book on your own and check out what's going there. But we're going to hit some, some really important highlights as we go through this. And let me set the stage for you, the context of the culture that they're, that they're in. For 41 years... In the 8th century, the northern kingdom of Israel, because it had been separated from the southern kingdom of Judah, that kind of have a, had a civil war and they're separated at this point, they had a king named Jeroboam II. He was a very successful military leader. He actually won back land and, and broadened the borders of the northern kingdom of Israel that they had lost before. Uh, they had established one of the wealthiest time periods for the country. Life was great. And here's how his reign is described in 2 Kings chapter 14. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. And this is what sets the tone for the entire book 
of Amos, another collection of prophetic messages through which God tells his people where they have gone wrong, what the consequences are going to be as a result of it, and how he will always be the God of the second chance. And what Amos does is he begins with talking about how God is going to judge the nations that surround Israel. So really things off pretty well, because as you read it, you think, oh man, this is not about God's people. This is about the people that surround them and all the bad things that they have done. Yeah, listen to how terrible all these other places are. It would be like us coming to church and hearing a sermon about how terrible all the other bad people in our life are, or all the bad countries in the world are. And we just went down the list and talked about their atrocities, the parts of their culture that we don't like. Maybe we could outline, outline the wrongs that they've done against the United States. And if we were to do that, we could begin to anticipate our thinking in that. Our sense of superiority would grow, right? Don't you always feel better when you talk down about somebody else? Isn't that why we do, we do that? It's like, well, at least I'm not, I'm not like that guy. You know, at least we're not like that country. You know, those kinds of things. We think about how great we are in comparison. And maybe we even have an attitude, kind of like this Pharisee in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18, and be thankful we're not like those other inferior people. Now, when it comes to the Olympics, don't get me wrong, our bets are off. You know, go at USA, we're the best, right? We can, we can do it. No, are we not excited about the? When are the Olympics happening, by the way? Is that 2021 now? Is that this year? Yeah, this summer it's happening? Awesome, go USA. But if we have to talk down about others, obviously I, I follow it very closely. If we have to talk down about others in order to make ourselves feel better, we're probably not in all that great of a place, right? And I imagine as Amos starts off and he talks about Damascus and he talks about Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and even Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel is feeling like they're in pretty good shape. Yeah, those places are terrible. We're so much better. But that's not really where they were headed because as Amos is talking about this and as God is talking about this, what they're seeing on the map, if you look, is that God is getting closer and closer and closer to them. And finally... Amos arrives at the northern kingdom of Israel, and this is what God says. Amos 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your youth, from your children, and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy." As Amos is using this for three sins, even for four, construction for all the groups he talks about. So if you read through Amos, you're going to see this at the very beginning of the chapter. Israel is the only one for whom he finishes and completes that list. And this is because as God is holding humanity accountable for their actions, it's the actions of those who proclaim to follow him and therefore represent him to the world that are the most important. It's so easy to point out the character flaws of others. Trust me, I'm, I'm practiced in that, right? We, we all know what, that, what it's like to, to do that. Uh, the things that seem so obvious to me that I can't help but wonder how people don't see it in themselves, you know, that's the thing, oh man, that person, how could they possibly think that or believe that? 
And I know for a fact that all along the way in my life, people have thought the same thing about me. You know, thankfully, not everybody lets me, out, lets me know about it all the time. Only a few here and there. But here's one of the biggest issues that God has against his people in this moment, is that they should know better. They should know better than to let the culture of these places that God had actually brought them out of, brought them out of Egypt, or the places that God had paved the way for them to experience in the promised land, to, to get rid of the sin and the evil and the destruction you know, that, that they had been running from for, for so long, that they would go back to these things and be enamored by them and start living them out themselves. And the same is true for us as followers of Jesus. God's character in this has not changed. That when it comes to the life we lead compared to the life that God has saved us from, bringing us from death to new life, we ought to know the better life to which we've been called and recognize the difference from that life and the life that is led that is apart from God. Israel wasn't finding new ways to reject God. They were simply following in the footsteps of their geographical neighbors. And that was precisely the problem. We get into trouble with our, in our relationship with God when the culture of the world is influencing us more than the culture of Christ. That, that's, when, that's when problems begin. One of the examples Amos gives is that God had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and yet they had turned around and they were selling people into debt slavery. They were oppressing the poor. They were worshiping idols right alongside their worship of God, and they were doing much more than just those things. All the things that they had been saved from. In fact, in the northern kingdom, one of the, in, in 2 Kings chapter 14, Jeroboam II, the sin that he was continuing all the way from Jeroboam I, who were a couple of generations removed from him, is that Jeroboam I had set up golden calves. And if you remember, you remember the exodus from Egypt, that, that might sound familiar to you. He actually set up golden calves in, two, calves in two different towns in the northern kingdom of Israel so that the people of Israel would worship there instead of traveling south to Judah because he didn't want them to be reconciled to their brothers and sisters that lived there. Remember, it was a civil war. They were one people that were split in two. And the way that they kept them separate is to say, you know what? Instead of having to travel to the temple of Jerusalem, we'll set up a couple fake ones up here so you could just get your religious you know, activity out, out here. Why? They didn't want reconciliation among the people because that would cause them to lose their power over them. And so there's an intentional culture set up to drive people away from God so their life and their actions wouldn't reflect him, so they wouldn't be driven by God in their life, so they would be driven by all the other things that they were distracted by. And this is one of the things that we have to be careful of when it comes to our lives and when it comes to the life of the church. Just because we live within a system or culture that feels comfortable and familiar to us, that we've grown up in, you know, that we've been in school for, all of those things, doesn't mean that we should get, engage with it on its own terms. As Christians, we're meant to be conspicuously different from the rest of the world. That even means within our own culture, our own country. In the world, not of it, might be a way that you've heard that said if you grew up in the church, and that's from John 17, a prayer that, that Jesus prays. My concern lately has been that many Christians, particularly in our country, because that's our cultural context, have defined conspicuously different as really just being on the other side of the same coin. We choose a political side, for example, and pretend that it proves an ethical high ground. We cherry-pick conspiracies to fuel our favorite narrative. We let matters of opinion be the impetus to argue moral superiority and even break relationship. And when the church has a beautiful opportunity to show others that we are Christians by our love 
and by our unity in a time when they are in short supply and desperately needed by the world around us. The chief concern for way too many is whether or not the church has a position on masks. Meanwhile, I have this mental image of the prophets like Amos pointing their hands in the opposite direction and saying, hey, look, I know, I know that this is what the culture is wrapped up in right now and what they're concerned about, what everybody's upset about and arguing about, all those kinds of things. But if you're allowing the current events of the world ruin your relationships and opportunity to love others, you're missing what faith in God is all about and you're missing what God has saved you to. And it, it's, right, it's right over here. Meanwhile, the way that we've been led to treat each other and talk about each other and how to think about each other has become increasingly toxic when led by our current popular cultural norms. When we get caught up in that, even our religious expression of faith no longer has the same type of impact on our lives. From Amos 5, this is how far things had gotten for Israel. God says this. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. You know, you can read that and you think, well, God, we're doing what you asked us to do. Yeah, but you're also doing that with idols. And you're also letting the world dictate how you interact with each other and how you live your life. And God says, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. So not only did their worship cease to mean what it was supposed to mean for them, God wouldn't even accept it. That, that relationship that is meant to build when we come together and worship, it wasn't happening for the Israelites. Because it's never been about the religious right. It's always been about the heart and the soul and the mind behind it. Without justice, those are the actions that we take against injustice. And without righteousness, the right relationship with God and therefore others that we're called into, no sacrifice or offering or praise that we bring means, means what it's meant to. It's the continual pursuit of justice and righteousness, seeking good over evil, that produces the heart and spirit of worship that actually honors God and actually restores the world around us. And this is one of the things that as the church and as Christians that we need to be aware of in this current period of time in our culture. But Amos's preaching was not popular received, popularly received. He was told to pack up, head home because he was going to upset the status quo, that people were comfortable with the way things are because as long as their self-interest was met, they didn't see any reason to change, even when they knew that as God's people, their rights came with the responsibility to live as he had called them to. In fact, this is an ongoing theme that we see throughout the Old Testament, that we see throughout humanity, is that people get in trouble with their sin. God helps. Things go well. People start worshiping the things that are going well. They get in trouble with their sin. God helps. Rinse. Repeat. And God continues to send messengers as a reminder. He continues to give us his word for us to read and to know and to study and live out as a reminder that if we allow our sin to direct who we are and the sins of our culture to determine how we act, that we're doomed. With that in mind, surely we all know we should change and we'll do something about it. We know our faith shouldn't be driven by our politics or economics or power or comfort or injustice and that if it is, we're going to die. It's a life or death situation that Amos is presenting the kingdom of evil of kingdom of Israel, sorry, misspoke there. And it's a life or death situation for us. The problem is this. 
You know, because, you know, we might think, even, even this morning, if you're struggling with that, maybe you feel charged up or something like that. Okay, life, death situation, like, let's, let's go, let's tackle this, let's love, let's be unified, let's change the world for, for Jesus, right? That might be how, how we're thinking, hopefully, right, right now. The problem is this, is that we are more likely to choose death. When it comes to a life or death situation, there, there are studies that, that have, have gone through this. 90% of people, when they're confronted with an adapt or change, change or die situation, their actions, you know, might say intellectually, oh yeah, I'd, I'd rather survive, but their actions over the course of time, 90% of people choose death. Stop drinking or you will die, stop smoking or you will die, change your diet now or you will die. The vast majority of people choose to risk death instead of changing what they're already comfortable with, what they're already used to doing, what, what's already the culture that they've you know, surrounded their life with, that they've been engaged with. We simply do not want to stop doing what we want, even if it's killing us. This is why God has a problem with sin. This is why he speaks so strongly. As you read through Amos, the whole nine chapters, of, most of the nine chapters of Amos are, are very strong language about what God is going to do as, as a result of the sin of, of Israel and Judah and the surrounding country, countries, the surrounding peoples around, around them. And it sounds, it's very destructive language. It's like, man, this seems really harsh. But it's because of how destructive sin is. And yet, despite that destruction, God continues to be the God of the second chance. Because it's not how he ends things. At the end of Amos, God describes what he will do out of the ruin and destruction that Israel causes. It's not so much God is saying, ah, oh, I'm going to, you know, here, I'm going to have some fun and, and zap you, you know, a few, a few times. And say, hey, this is the result of the sin and destruction that you have in your life. And this is what he says in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, 15. In that day, after, after, after you've ruined everything, in that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it was used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And God here is talking about Jesus. He's talking about what he's going to do through the Christ, the Messiah, who comes to offer salvation, not, not just to the Israelites, but to all people, all of humanity, who are caught up in this destructive cycle of sin because of the worldly cultures that are built up around us. Jesus is coming to build a brand new life out of the old. I mean, that is the resurrection that we experience when we are invited into him, we say yes to him, we're baptized. I mean, that, that's the whole picture of going into the water, coming back up, is we, we get rid of the old, and we put on the brand new, the second chance, moving from death to life. It's what God offers us as followers of Jesus. And when we find that life and we lead it, we pursue the justice and righteousness of God or the systems of the cultures of this world, the things that we might be caught up in. And so the challenge for us as followers of Jesus is to make sure, like, what, what is driving our reaction to the people around us? 
What is driving our reaction to the world around us, the situations that are happening? You know, if we're not developing in the midst of, you know, this world, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, what is it that's keeping it from us? Because it might be that something that we're just used to doing, you know, used to thinking, used to being part of as rote, just because we grew up in it, you might be keeping us from the life that God has called us to. And maybe, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe you haven't said yes to him yet. And, and maybe part of that is maybe one of the reasons why you're here is because you've noticed, man, things, things are just not right. They're not where they should be. And so much of that has to do with where our culture is taking us. And that's the reason why we're so divided. That's the reason why people are so isolated. That's the reason why people are so depressed. That's the reason why people are talking about each other the way that they are. It's exhausting. And it's because it's never about how we were called to live. And there's a brand new life. There's a brand new second chance that God offers us. And so as a church, like we, we want to invite you to that. We want to offer that, uh, that conversation, whatever it looks like, whatever questions that you have, you know, whatever concerns, whatever you know, questions about God that you, you may have, things that you don't agree with, whatever, whatever it is. Like we're, we're here to walk through that with you as we move from an old dead life to a brand, brand new one. And so check, check out velocitychurch.info, let us know if you wanna have that conversation with us. In the meantime, as we continue our worship this morning, we're gonna do something that we do every week at Velocity. We take communion with each other because this centers us and grounds us in God being the God of the second chance. That as we come to this table and as we've examined ourselves, as 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you know, Paul goes through and he talks about how the church, even around communion, had become so caught up in, the, in, in how the culture, you know, approaches these things that they were missing the whole point of communion. He says, hey, you know, when you come, when you come do this, don't do it in an unworthy manner. Make sure you're examining yourself. And that, that's not just like a last second cram for the exam, you know, at church right before communion thing. That's an ongoing throughout our whole life thing throughout the week as we think about what God has called us to, this life that he's, he's offered to us, as we come and as we take communion together, as it represents Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, it's a reminder to us of the brand new life that we're called and enabled to live through God's Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we praise you for, for the opportunity that we have for the meaningfulness of worship, that, that it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of whose we are. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to, um, to praise you, to worship you, to glorify you, and how that reorients our life, recenters us into the life that you've called us to. God, as we share in this time of communion together, guide us through your Holy Spirit as we are reminded about what this, this sacrifice of Jesus and this resurrection of Jesus fully represents in our lives. And it's in, in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, uh, if you're here with us, there are tables uh, throughout the, the room. And so if you want to uh, get up as the band